Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I spoke with Lee Kagan and we discussed his experience in working in an offensive security capacity and what his thoughts were towards how companies should be looking at their security posture. Lee touched on his opinion on why he believes more companies need to be thinking offensively and how to handle feeling overwhelmed from this approach. If you're keen to learn more about offensive security and how Lee is solving these problems, then please keep on listening. So, Lee, I believe we connected originally on Twitter. I can't remember how. I think someone may have put us in contact, but doing an interview on offensive security has definitely been an area that I've wanted to focus on for a while. And before we sort of jump into the details of that area, I'd love to talk more about you. So, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So, can you please walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Absolutely. So um, I, I have my whole, you know, beginning to end story pretty much all happening in, in Toronto, Canada here. And it really began, you know, not that extravagant. I was just a techie kid, uh, very mechanical, all that kind of stuff. So when the computer started coming into the household, that was instant attraction. Usually me screwing things up and breaking them a lot and mm-hmm. zero intention of putting it back together. So I was very ripe for becoming a future hacker. Um, and I think it just sort of blossomed into tinkering with, with stuff that would be in the household over time. So as we got Wi-Fi, as we got you know, more modern computers, then I would sort of just get known amongst like friends and family. Hey, go help them set up their network. And then eventually it turned into something I wanted to do for work. So I kind of just uh, dived into the industry. Uh, a friend of a friend uh, office was hiring. They got me in there. And I was quite literally an IT like grunt, like on my knees, wiping dust out of the corners of server rooms and closets and that kind of stuff very much not glamorous at all. And then sort of after enough time and just picking up some skills and, and things like that, I, I ended up getting bumped into more administrative role. We ended up getting hacked. And that was my first encounter with security, really. Um, I was fascinated by what happened, how it happened. And pretty much immediately after that, I got very obsessed with, you know, what we call information security and, and offensive security and all that. So I kind of shifted gears to get into that stuff. And, uh, started studying. You know, this is right around the time, I think, when more institutions began teaching, more courses started becoming public, um, right at kind of the inception of that trend. And then I, yeah, just started practicing, studying, got my first kind of pen test junior role uh, at a place and haven't stopped since. And that's, that's kind of been about the last uh, seven or eight years, I would say, just devoted to security. And so it's almost like you kind of fell into doing the security side of it because obviously you guys got hacked and then you're like, oh, this is interesting. And then you sort of delve a little deeper. Is that correct? More or less. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm, there was always an attraction to hackers, I think, when I was a kid, just in general. Mm-hmm. Something very, you know, weirdly romantic, I thought about the idea of the hacker. Um, <laughs> and yeah, and it, it, it did also, maybe not aware to me at the time, it was, I think, some of the base skills someone might have in order to get drawn into security, whether mm-hmm. it's offense or defense, we're kind of there, just it hadn't been, it hadn't showed itself yet. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So one of the areas I'd like to sort of dive into now is before we get into the offensive uh, security side of the interview is, can you just set the scene and the difference between 
penetration testing and red teaming. And I ask this because I think there's still a lot of confusion just based on stuff that I see online. I, I see people sort of in Twitter debates and stuff like that. And I really would like you to explain the difference in detail so people do have a comprehensive understanding of how these two mechanisms are actually different. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. Every every week there's another Twitter drama about what means what, <laughs> that stuff. Um, I think even before going into the explanation, one of the the downsides of that confusion existing all the time is uh, in a traditional sense of what pen testing and red teaming might mean, it's the industry has torn it into so many different directions that almost the traditional definitions, whether you like them or not, may not even apply across the board anymore. But regardless of that, the shortest, simplest way I explain penetration testing without any fluff, without any extra stuff on top is it's only about testing the technical components. That is all. We don't care about remediation processes. We don't care about, did I simulate that threat actor correctly? It is just a kind of neutral, could I exploit that system, that vulnerability? Yes or no. And usually at scale, you know, scanning a lot of IPs, hitting them with the same attack all at once. There's no real um, requirement for behavior or motive behind the simulated attack. It's Mm -hmm. just about, could I exploit technical thing? Yes, no. That's really it in my mind. When you talk about red teaming, so what I prefer, and just for my own personal tastes, is the traditional senses of what red teaming is. And what that usually means is where it came from. And and you could argue even further back in history, but a lot of red teaming methodologies and ideologies came out of the military. And one of my favorite ways of describing red teaming is just what's called alternative analysis, getting a second opinion on something. Now, in a traditional sense, what you're trying to do is attack yourself with some of your best qualified people who can do that kind of work and then see how you hold up. The problem with that is, and where a lot of stuff in the industry can mix it up, is if you're attacking yourself as the people that you are, then you're not really preparing the other side being the defensive people for the actual threat actors that are attacking them later in the day. These are two different things. So what ends up happening is red teaming should be in a traditional sense about um, an form of alternative analysis against the self where your sort of best people are conducting the attacks usually with some kind of motive or a behavior behind it. You're attacking the organization as a whole, so to speak. It's not just about could I get on that system. It's could I evade the threat hunting team? Could I persist long enough in the environment to monitor business dealings and mergers and acquisitions? Could I, uh, you know, do any of these sort of deep impact assessments where it goes beyond just the technical? You're trying to, in some way or another, simulate a threat, whether that's a specific actor with a specific set of things they do, or it's a series of threat uh, techniques or intrusion sets that you're worried about. And what you're trying to do is usually either nail those on the head for as close as you can get to how they look and they feel in, in reality, mm-hmm. or constantly test the organization 24-7 throughout the year as a dedicated internal red team in all aspects of the organization, not just could I get access to a computer. That's, that's not painting any kind of picture. I realize that's also not a short version, but that's kind of in my head the way I've been treating it all these years. What I think that was interesting that you mentioned earlier on in the piece is our industry has sort of torn the difference between these two aspects into many different directions. Why do you think that is? That is, in my opinion, because of one, when when the, the words red team started really popping up on the public radar all the time, there was, you know, again, like like me as the kid with the hacker, there was a bit of an attraction to what people think that meant. 
Like, mm-hmm. ooh, my team is going to come in and do some fancy stuff. So regardless of whether you have sourced a proper red team provider or built an internal program, didn't really matter. It was just about being able to do something and call it red teaming, usually with the intention of like, hey, look what I did. Or, oh, I, I made that cool sale of a quote unquote red team. A lot of the time what happens is pen tests are getting sold as red teams. Why? Because they're much lower resources. You can charge a lot for them and spend very little if it's really just a basic pen test. And mm-hmm. the sad part of that, I mean, I think that's unethical as, you know, as unethical gets in one, in one regard. But on the other end, on the client side, they may have no concept of what getting red teams, so to speak, would even look like. Sure, so sure. there's a bit of an advantage taking that goes on. And this is what causes a lot of that public murmur that you see where, you know, it's folks from either, let's just call it relatively correct, uh, thorough, exhaustive red teams and others that are basically just pen testers wrapped as red teams. They'll, they'll know what they're doing. And then when somebody throws out the question of, is this real or not, you feel offended. You feel like, oh, are they talking about me? So it's this debate and this, this anger and this finger pointing a lot. So, you know, long story short, I think there's onus on both parts, I should say, where you may not be ready for a red team as a client, but somebody convinced you that that's what you should get. And there's mm-hmm. plenty of providers out there that will happily sell you a faux red team, uh, you know, for a fortune. And that's mm-hmm. a big part of what it is. You piecemeal out from the rather difficult complexity of what putting together a, a sophisticated red team looks like into this sort of like, you know, uh, rouge group, let's call it that. Mm-hmm. It's not even really, you know, red team. It's just piecemeal, help get the sale done. We don't have to deal with them later. We'll get a chunk of cash and walk away. And that's, that's not going to look good for you in the long run. No. So when it, when it does come to offensive security, do you believe enough organizations are adapting these types of strategies? And I ask this because at the end of the day, like when you're sort of coming in offensively, it's really about, oh, we actually are heavily vulnerable. And I think that can be really taken back by a lot of people. Do you think that's why people don't necessarily opt for this type of uh, strategy? I think that's part of it. I I think there's other reasons like um, similar to the red team confusion question. um, They're adapting them, but maybe it's not the right thing. Uh, Maybe it didn't have the, the output they were hoping for to get some value out of it, or they've heard all the, the red team horror stories where it really was just a, an overpriced pen test and go, well, why would I want that if I'm going to get ripped off? There's also, and I think this, this ties in with other stuff we're going to talk about of the general natural question people should ask is, wait, who am I letting in to, to attack my entire organization and how comfortable I am with that? I think for, for organizations that haven't made the shift yet to adopting security testing, that can feel very scary. Like it's almost counterintuitive to the mind to think like, wait, you're going to come in and hack me and that's going to make me better. That mentality can be hard to fight sometimes. Uh, the other part of it is, no, if you're an organization that relies on very clearly a lot of things that you know are probably fairly simple to attack. So you have a lot of old stuff or you know some best practices that haven't put in place yet, and you know these testers are going to come in and just absolutely rip it apart, you may be swayed to not have that done or to not adopt it yet. And for me, I I think there's no point where you should ever feel like it's too late or it's not worth doing. But what people shouldn't do or what organizations shouldn't do is go out and buy the fancy thing just because it's fancy, right? Like I've said to people before, if you actually want to make my life difficult as an attacker, the real basic stuff organizations do for best practices for hardening makes my life really hard as a tester. You know, it's not about buying fancy blinky lights and things. So Mm -hmm. I think those are all contributing factors to why Adoption might not be in place for certain organizations, but the other way I think they should look at it is you are acting defensively 
by having those audits, those pen tests, those, you know, hopefully maturing to the point of a, a red team test or adversary simulation, that is you being defensive. You know, it, it, it's, it's the act of exercising a little humility to the, to have a spotlight put on the way you're set up. And it's always good to have people from the outside come in and look and then develop internal teams. So, you know, it is a process and, and it's really just about the convincing that this is actually very helpful. Well, it can definitely deter people because if they're paying a quite substantially more than a traditional pen test, then they might just think, well, I've just paid effectively for some branding and a name and I haven't actually gotten the outcome that I thought I was going to get. Absolutely. And I've seen it happen many, many times. Our shop here in Toronto has been called in after the fact because of how unhappy somebody was with their previous provider. Um, That's disappointing. It's really disappointing. And then from there, we have a difficult job of trying to reinstill confidence in the process. Mm. So do you believe most organizations are acting defensively and just purely that because they feel so under pressure as it is? And so the thought of even acting offensively just feels incredibly overwhelming. Defense, let's let's not, you know, I think everyone knows this. Defense is really hard to, mm-hmm. I hate putting it this way, but to get quote unquote right. Always hear about the imbalance, the the David and Goliath nature of attacking and defending. And there's there's arguments to be made in in both corners, but yeah, I think that that pressure of look at what this roadmap of things we have to do is going to look like that would overwhelm anybody. Mm. One thing that I like that somebody once said to me about vulnerability management um, was, you know, let's say we have to check our entire infrastructure for some set of vulnerability. And we find out out of a hundred thousand computers, a hundred thousand of them have this problem. So that means we have 0% defense against uh, this (laughs) fleet. Well, if you start working on it, even just a little and go from zero to say 15%, that's to go from zero to anything is excellent. (laughs) You know, going from nothing to something is great. So it's one of these things like you have to come to terms with the fact that the speed of which the game of whack-a-mole that is attack and defend is, is happening at these days, which is really, really fast. The worst injustice I think you can do to yourself as an organization is not just not begin is to be afraid of the work that's coming. It's got to get done. There's no real way around that. And to, to sit idly by and procrastinate is you're shooting yourself in the foot. No question. One of the things that I'd like to ask you about on that note is you said, you know, playing whack-a-mole and this whole sort of theory between offensive and defensive. This seems in my opinion and experience, this seems to be like a bit of ego between those red and blue teams. Absolutely. <laughs> Why do you think that is? And I know this because I've got a lot of friends that work in blue teaming, a lot of friends that work in red teaming, and there's, there's just like this this awkward ego, awkward Mexican standoff thing. And I'm just, I'm just curious as to why. Yeah, well, the why, uh, I don't have a clear answer. I think I have some indicators of where that comes from. One is just, first of all, it's just the nature of, well, you're on that team, I'm on that team. So it's tribalism at its best. We gave ourselves labels and we said, you're on the, the, you know, the defender's corner and I'm in the attacker's corner. Ding, ding. There's also, and you know, this isn't true across the board. I think a bit of, of, you know, the technology culture comes with introverts. So it's very easy online or on Twitter to talk. <laughs> it's very easy to do that. It's a lot harder in person, but it's very easy to brag and to show bravado and ego and all that stuff. The other parts to it is too, you know, you have a lot of people that would come out from uh, government and military sectors that get into InfoSec and they have a pretty hardcore mentality and they're pretty loyal to where they come from. And then you have the sort of, you know, hardcore street hacker ethos that, that exists as well. You throw all these groups together 
And yeah, you 100% have, you know, like seven cats in a room just meowing at the top of their lungs. It's unavoidable. I think it's completely unnecessary. Sometimes it's kind of cute and fun. But the biggest problem I have is I hate the attitude of they're over there. We're over here. We're enemies. We're not supposed to work together. I think that's that's a terrible way to look at things. And, you know, sadly, I don't think anybody's going to be changing a lot of those attitudes. It's not everybody either. And usually the loudest people fill up that space. But um, I know there's so many of us that don't think that way. One of my favorite things to do in the world is, is work with one of my very good friends who's at another company who's a pure defender. We sit around and chat all day, just bouncing ideas off each other mm-hmm. and from each other. And it's the best thing. It's like my favorite part of my day. So yeah, I don't really know why that came to be other than I think we shouldn't be surprised that it did. I think it really is in general, just an infosec thing. I mean, I ask people all over the globe about that, the ego and people think they're better than the next person. There's, there's a lot of that. Uh, but it's just like, I've sat like literally in a sock and it's like the defenders going off about, Oh, well, if it wasn't for us, then everything would be vulnerable and attacked and we wouldn't even have this organization. And you've got like the offensive guys, like on the other side going like, Oh, well, if it wasn't for us, you wouldn't even know about anything. So there's still this, I don't know, this awkward behavior. So hopefully over time, people will just see that, yeah, we actually need both people, not one without the other. We need both to work together to ultimately protect. That's what we're all here to do. We're not here to sit there and say, well, I'm better than you or I'm better than that guy over there. And that's, I think sometimes people lose sight of that because they're so involved in what they're doing day to day and they actually forget the overall vision of why the hell they do it. That's true. And I think you're, you're absolutely right. I'm always curious, do other industries have this? Like, I don't imagine the plumbers industry having these, you know, red, blue conflicts going on talking mm-hmm. about you know, plumbing conventions. I just don't see that happening. I think a part of that is inherited with the fact that we're dealing with security. So mm-hmm. you feel you've done something in that realm, whether it's successful attack, successful defense, it's kind of easy to pat yourself on the back once and get a little drunk on it. Mm, I have no idea. I think it's just because to work in this industry, you do need to be incredibly passionate about it. And you do need to do a lot of things outside of your day-to-day job and outside of your work hours to really maintain your level of knowledge and and skill. So maybe, but maybe someone else out there can uh, answer that question. What I'd like to talk to you next about, Lee, is from what I know, Red Teaming has always performed like an off-network with laptops and laptops that don't even necessarily exist to an organization. But if this is the case, how are these types of employees being monitored as everything they are doing cannot be audited as easily? Right. There's a few different scenarios here. One, I think the easy one is uh, and it's probably the most unsettling answer is it's just a, a level of trust. It's kind of like uh, professionals in a lot of different industries. You know, I trust my my doctor not to cut my head off when he's doing his thing, but uh, there's no guarantee he won't. The same kind of exists a lot for for the, those types of scenarios with red teamers. Now, if it's an external red teaming service provider, uh, obviously you have no rights to audit their system whatsoever. On the internal side, it's what I've had experience with, what I know some others have done. It comes down to organizational policy and culture. So. You either want total control over all the systems. I want to know everything you've done on your on your work laptop. Some organizations split them. So you have like your work laptop and your attack laptop, which is mm-hmm. probably still a managed device. But, you know, you have kind of all the rights they would probably yank off your day to day work laptop. That's one aspect of it. The other part is you don't concern yourself so much for the laptop, but all attack infrastructure, even if it's the, the simulated command and control system that's supposed to represent the outside internet is part of organizational assets. So maybe it's in your Amazon cloud or in your Azure cloud. Um, Those are being monitored. So the only kind of piece out of the chain that 
doesn't really fall in there would be just the laptop. But again, it's mm-hmm. going to come down to, you know, how that company feels really. And what are some of the frameworks, I guess, organizations can adopt to ensure executives feel like they can sleep at night, knowing that their offensive security team are in fact doing the right thing? Sure. So with kind of known public frameworks with regards to red teaming, there's a few sticking around. There's some that I don't, I don't know how much I would suggest anyone adopt, but for general offensive security programs, you know, you have things like uh, P-Test, the Penetration Testing Execution Standard. Um, that's always a great one. It's maintained by some really great folks. Um, Crest, C-R-E-S-T in the UK, is, does some sort of like verification. They're certifications essentially, but they're saying like, you're a Crest certified red teamer. We've put you through some kind of process that sometimes makes people feel a little better. A good one, honestly, is I think people should check out various nations, like usually I'll use Canadian or US military documents that are public, about how operational red teams are constructed, used what their function is, what their process is, and then pick out what's relevant to you as a company. That's one way to do about it. I know a lot of people like to gravitate towards the MITRE ATT&CK framework. This shouldn't be used for this. I love MITRE ATT&CK. I love the people that work there. They're all phenomenal. But it is something that can supplement looking at what your red team is doing, using techniques, how many of them did they do, like almost looking at it as a metric type of deal. Another thing that's becoming, I hope, more common uh, that I know a few shops are working on is sort of like red team operational performance metrics. So what that means is imagine like an elk dashboard with all your fancy pie charts and graphs and whatnot. And the logs it's pulling in is about what your red team has done on the operation. So what time they clocked into the infrastructure, how many uh, you know hours they banked on this op in the attack system, what commands they run, how many times they did something that got caught. These are almost like red team management KPIs you could look at in a way. And what you're doing is they're not just normal organizational, how's my team doing type stuff. This is what are they doing? How are they doing it? How often are they doing it? What are they doing that's not working? What is working during this operation? When you collect that information, you look at all the ops during a year, and then you can have this nice, you know, statistical metric-based way of looking at here's how our red team functioned throughout the year. Now that's something you would develop in-house and you would pick the indicators that, that matter to you. But I think that's a really cool way of on top of just the technical attacking stuff, looking at how your red team is making the best use of their time during offensive engagements. And do you think that's a really good approach in terms of adoption for internal teams? Because I've even heard there are certain offensive security uh, engineers that are hired that people don't even know about. How would you sort of navigate that for an executive that's probably thinking it's something I need to do, but it also does concern me because I don't really have control or visibility of what these people are doing. And I might not even know who we've actually employed to do offensive security for this organization. So I think this is where now what an organization may want to call this role is kind of up to them, but a liaison in a way. Now, normally a red team, I hope would have a lead or a manager or someone that's going to collect that stuff, disseminate that stuff and kick up those values to whoever it needs to go to the CISO directors, whatever. That's one way. Cause I, I you're going to be hard pressed to find, think an executive that can sit around and, and watch the dashboard for what the red team is, is doing or not doing that day. But having the ability to present that information at a glance, really quick and concise, to someone in the executive levels who needs that information back, it's a great way to go. I, I absolutely endorse it. I know we work on that type of stuff uh, where I am, and it's incredibly, incredibly helpful. It's not something I think they should be afraid of. It just doesn't have to solely re- like land on your shoulders only as the, the CISO or whatever it is. Give the action order, 
kick it down the line, have that liaison, get work with the red team to get set up to start collecting that information mm-hmm. and have your ones and just report it. So I guess at the end of the day, it's really about that assurance, right? Like, yes, we brought in these guys. We don't even know who they are. They're doing offensive security stuff with, with laptops that are off network. And I think it's just really at the end of the day, it's about that assurance that we've got these people in order to make our organization uh, safer. And, and that's what their whole function is to do. And I think that just some of the conversations that I've heard is like, oh, yeah, but then I don't know if what they're doing is right. What happens if it exposes me? Or And I think there's still that. Like, like you said, originally speaking, there still needs to be that level of trust. And I think that's something that is going to take time. And I think it's just going to be the more we mature as an industry that this will become quite normal in terms of day-to-day type of uh, function. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, I could, I can totally sympathize and understand that, that hesitance, but I think we can probably all agree that, you know, the alternative is much worse. Mm-hmm. where the people that did attack you and, and do whatever damage they did, I guarantee you're not going to be able to call them up and ask what they did because they're, <laughs> you know, they legitimately are on the run. So I think it's still a better play regardless of how you got to get out of those comfort zones or those discomfort zones sometimes. I would be quite impressed if someone did call someone up and say, hey, uh, mate, you've hacked my organization. Like, can you just run through what you've done? I- I'd be impressed if someone actually did respond on that. But That's that is... <laughs> You know, there are those cases where the attackers went on Pacebin and posted how they did it. And I'm like, hey, you know, the silver lining here is you got a free pen test report. Oh, so my God. Use of- That's nuts. <laughs> oh, okay. So, Lee, what, what do you sort of see that's on the horizon when it comes to offensive security? What do you sort of see in the next 12 to 18 months that in terms of trends that people should be looking to? Or what do you sort of see this industry evolving to? I was on a panel not long ago, and one of the other presenters did a talk on uh, one of the major threat actors and malware kits that's running around dropping ransomware and all that good stuff and the technology behind it and what it used. And then later on the panel, we had a question about, you know, what do you think uh, the future of machine learning and AI is and all those nice. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I flat out said, look, you know, people can get all nuts about that the way they got nuts about Bitcoin and all that good stuff. Um, I couldn't care less, to be honest. I really don't, because we just saw a talk about how visual basic macros took down an organization. I mean, those things are from like the 1800s. So it's, it's kind of like I flashy big name stuff. Absolutely. I don't care about in terms of trends. Um, offensively, offensive DevOps is becoming very hot. So to speak, Mm -hmm. um, this, this idea of leveraging all these great borderline free, uh, DevOps utilities like, uh, Azure DevOps or GitHub actions that, allow an attacker to streamline pipeline workflow, build at need, build at request, new versions of their kit, access it from anywhere, deploy it into your infected systems. That's an extremely very cool thing that it's getting a lot of attention. Um, we're starting to see a lot more, more and more public research come out for targeting cloud tenants, not just the stuff that's running in them. So how to actually take over an Azure tenant, how to take over an AWS tenant. Uh, all those type of things, which, you know, if your if your infrastructure is running in that tenant and I take mm-hmm. it over, you just own the whole infrastructure. This was the problem with virtualizing your your entire infrastructure for a long time. If I own the physical virtualization server, then I own what it's running. So that that's another one that we're seeing more stuff come out. Apple's Apple OS X is another one where, you know, it's now there's a ton of public tools, ton of public frameworks coming out for attacking modern, you know, very recent versions of Apple because we're seeing it more in fleets, you know, most organizations are not exclusively Windows Active Directory dominant anymore. I mean, they still might be dominant, but they're having growing percentages in OSX fleets. And 
most, I think the general public, both defense and offense, isn't that up to speed on the current state of uh, public, public working exploits, public working tools and R and D. So that's another big one. And I think, I think generally speaking, and this is the very nature of offensive security is whatever becomes designed to either secure the last thing or whatever type of app software tooling is widely adopted enough. That's what we're going to spend our time focusing on. Mm-hmm. You know, constantly the biggest EDR vendors and threat intelligence vendors, blah, 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 put out their big marketing pieces for black hat. And then during the conference, see the mm-hmm. uh, researchers release a bypass just to throw it in their face. Again, it comes back to the whack-a-mole. So it's just whatever matters at the time. You know, that, that's really, I think, the, the short and sweet of it. But where do you sort of see the gaps? Where is the downfalls? This is one thing that's so fun about our industry for security is outside of the security departments, whatever, we, we all become children all of a sudden where whatever the newest, you know, bright light is, we just want in on it before we know anything about it. Cloud is one of those ones. And, you know, even the word cloud, I, I still find funny. It just, you know, in my head, I just hear somebody else's server. It's not in the sky. And with those, you know, I think to take something like Azure Active Directory, for an example, uh, more and more people are trying to move into it from on-premises or still doing the hybrid thing, which is probably a better way to go, in my opinion. That that lack of like, hey, we don't really fully understand the full landscape yet. Let's let's kind of, you know, shift down to first gear or second gear for a minute and just kind of hold off. Another big thing that contributes to, you know, whatever the gap might be is kind of what we talked about before is this idea of siloing out or completely firewalling out your defensive and offensive teams. That to me is, is bananas. I don't understand why they shouldn't talk to talk to one another. You don't have to have the whole teams, you know, every day getting on some sort of huddle conference, but I chat directly with our active directory people all the time. I chat directly with our defensive engineers all the time and not the whole red team does it. Like I, I just kind of do it when we have stuff to talk about. So uh, keeping those, those important departments separate from one another in a way where they don't communicate is absolutely detrimental. Another one is, and this one comes up a lot, is skilling up your younger staff, even your more senior staff, but, but especially the younger folks. Like if there is training that is directly relative to their role or may elevate them into another role within the same org and enhance their skills, to not have buy-in for that, I think is, is a really unattractive feature of an organization. And it's not enough to just say, hey, well, we have a back-end deal with X training provider, so we'll always give you their training. Their training might not be that great or even relevant. Um, so I really give my hats off to to organizations that are like, you know, hey, we're going to give you whatever it is, five grand, 10 grand a year to to take whatever training you want, as long as it you know makes sense and it's relevant. Um, that's something I encourage very much. Like, get these are your people you invested in. them. You're paying their salaries every time you cut them a check. You are investing in them. You may as well get the absolute best out of them to close up those gaps. And. I think the other ones that it's all those tiring excuses of what's holding an organization back defensively. Well, we got all this really old stuff. It's really hard to patch. Um, and it, look, look, those are all true things, but we can't keep using this as an excuse every year. Like at what, where's the line in the sand where we go, look, I'm sorry, but we have to get you out of the dark ages of your systems. Somehow the excuse is not holding water as much every year that passes. Mm-hmm. And again, also, I think the, the most dangerous attitude Nord has that contributes to their, their detection gaps or their overall security gaps is checklist mentality of just get it done mentality. You hear this a lot with pen tests that deal with compliance. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've, I've been involved with these early in the beginning and they made me sick to my stomach. I felt dirty doing them, you know, where it was like, hey, help, just help us get through this compliance. Otherwise, they're going to they're going to screw us if we don't finish. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that I think is so immoral and, and unethical to do, but it's extremely common. I just used to ask people, do you want a tick in the box or do you want us to do a proper pen test? Right. Do you want me to yank your tooth out or just tell you I did? Because one does suck, but it has, you know, you're not going to lose you know, your whole mouth. <laughs> and the other one is just going to make you feel happy for a minute. Like, let's be realistic here. Absolutely. I still just honestly think that people still have no clue when it comes to that stuff. But one of the questions that I'd like to go back on when you said before, like that departments within organizations are still heavily siloed and not really talking to each other. Why do you think that is? It's funny because we're seeing the cyclical nature of all these problems is uh, many people could argue with me on this. I want to say, you know, we're always talking about humans. We say organization, but we're talking about people, right? So there's always going to be ego. There's always going to be ladder climbers who, who only care about getting as high as possible as they can at whatever the cost. So imagine department heads where the fear, or at least the perception is, well, that other department, their job is to circumvent everything that we did, that we worked really hard on. Why would I want to collaborate with them? If all they're ever going to do, their mandate is to knock down our defenses day after day. Mm, Why help them? Yes. You know, they don't understand that you're failing up. It's not you're, you're doing good by having it exposed. You get the good, you know, the, the good boy marks if, if you fix the problem. I get that. But I think from a defensive point of view, it's like, oh, damn, they've now highlighted all of our flaws. And then they probably feel we look bad now. We didn't see it. Uh, we didn't have that covered or we, I don't know, we didn't do well in this area. So I think it comes from that as well because offensive security teams highlighting, hey, Mr. Blue Team, here's all your holes. They potentially could think that their roles and jobs are at jeopardy. Absolutely. I, when I started out, when I started my own shop here, I used to do this thing where I would do the debriefing with the client uh, after the pen test report, where it was almost like a funeral. Like I kept apologizing for how sorry I was. <laughs> and, you know, I was I'm so sorry for your loss. Um, it was, I felt so bad. Like I had done, like I was going to get people in trouble, you know, like I don't want any of you to get fired. And it's just not the case. That doesn't actually happen. But you're right. I think there's the perception of they, you know, being offense people are going to make us look bad. Mm-hmm. And yes. It's not the it's not the reality. It's just a perception. To be fair, though, I have seen people uh, being fired post pen testing reports. Um, so that that does can happen. Um, oh, but happen. that's a much bigger well, problem with the organization. Yes, but we'll just focus on the positives. So I'd like to uh, I'd like to wrap up today's interview just purely asking you, like, where do you believe executives should be paying attention when it comes to offensive security? Uh, it, it's an interesting one. So one of the things I love at Symantec, or the company formerly known as Symantec, <laughs> was our CISO would sit down on the calls with us, you know, every now and then, like just, you know, the bunch of the red teamers hanging out, talking about what we've been up to. I can honestly say at the technical team level, having buy-in from that upper levels of management from the executive levels to the point where I personally know that you're hearing me out, you're reading our reports or at least an aggregation of our reports uh, instills a lot of confidence in me. It makes me feel good. Um, that's one thing. Let the technical teams know that you, you give a damn. It's not enough to just say it in monthly newsletters. Mm. I want to hear you. I want to see you. And I understand these people are very busy, but understand that the, the people in the trenches want to know that, you know, the, the commanders they have on the battlefield are with them and then they're not, you know, running the other way. We want to know you're there with us. Um, that's a, that's a big thing. Have our backs. Another big thing is, I understand a lot of industries like to work with other giant big names. So you got to acquire some security software. It's going to be a giant contract with a fortune. 
But at the end of the day, all you're doing is buying a blinky light thing and it's a silver bullet solution, which often most times you shoot yourself with um, just because you want to show how you were able to negotiate this great deal. Again, we're coming back to that attitude of, you know, you're, you're doing more harm long term because you're trying to get instant gratification for looking fancy. Um, that, that one's not, not a very good attitude to have. And I think I said this before, end of the day, it is a lot like exercising humility. It is, it is a sign of strength to me in leadership to see them admit where we're weak and that we're going to set directions to work on this. You have our, our sign, you know, we're, we're letting you do this, go to work, fix things. That public perception of, you know, certain companies that because of what they do, you imagine they must be Fort Knox. But, you know, throughout my career, I can tell you, I've, I've done tests on industries that are considered very sensitive. And once you get on those networks, it can often be child's play. You get really surprised by how limited the defenses are. And I always wonder, well, where's all the money going? Where's all the buy-in from, from decision makers to help get this? This is sensitive stuff. So you got to get over that perception. And look, a breach that you were able to then defend against is the very nature of defense. This idea that if you stop it all at the edge level, look at how awesome your defense is. And if you do subscribe to assume breach mentality, that something will happen eventually. The true test of how good your defense and your security is, is how you handle the incident at hand is how good was your ability to detect, to isolate, to deter, to destroy, to evict them out of the network. That is how I'm going to measure how, how awesome your program is. Not just this you know, idea of, hey, nothing's happened, so we're obviously doing a good job because that bears the question, well, that maybe means, would you even know that something has already gone inside? So I think it's absolutely critical to exercise that humility and say, we ain't perfect. I know we got to work on this. You have my, my vote of confidence, my buy-in. Uh, let me know what you need from us and go to work. Awesome. I love your answers from a technical perspective, but also from an executive sort of mindset as well that sometimes I don't often hear because I think some people just want to focus on the technical side of it. But I think you've really come in at both angles, which really gives a very holistic point of view. So Lee, I've really appreciated your time. I love your energy. If people are keen to reach out to you post listening to this interview, where can I find you? Uh, best way to get in touch with me, I'm really active on Twitter. So um, you can reach me there at invoke threat guy, uh, all one word. Um, my real name's up there too, so you can find me that way. And I'm extremely active on there. Awesome. Well, Lee, thank you so much. I've personally learned a lot for myself and I'm assuming that our listeners will learn a lot from this interview as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.